And it's once again time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us on the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And today, the gay writers who changed America. I'm quoting here from the subtitle of a new book by Christopher Bram. The title is Eminent Outlaws. Eminent because we're talking about some of America's best-known writers. Household names like Truman Capote, Gore Vidal, Tennessee Williams, James Baldwin, Allen Ginsberg, and Edward Albee, just to name a few. And outlaws because they were gay at a time when even talking about homosexuality was considered risque or scandalous. Of course, all that's changed now, and Christopher Bram says that gay writers had a big hand in bringing about that change. In the decades following World War II, when movies and TV and other media wouldn't go anywhere near gay subjects, it was writers, he says, novelists, poets, and playwrights, who forced the issue. They brought homosexuality as a subject out of the closet, and made mainstream society consider the reality of gay lives. Christopher Bram is the author of nine novels. His best known is probably Father of Frankenstein, which was adapted into the movie Gods and Monsters, starring Ian McKellen, who, by the way, has a nice blurb on Chris's new book. And uh, before we begin talking about the book, I just wanted to explain that we will only be discussing gay male writers today. And that's not because Christopher Bram thinks that lesbian writers didn't also have a big role, but only because, as a gay male writer himself, he wanted to focus on the subject he knows best. Eminent Outlaws picks up after World War II, which Chris says was a watershed for gay writing. Before that, gay relationships were barely even hinted at in respectable literature. Nobody came out and actually called it gay. It would just be in these these stories of romantic friendship was how, how it would be expressed instead. But it wasn't until after World War II that people felt free to call gay, gay, or queer, queer. Suddenly, people were talking about it. And you chalked that up, in some respects, to World War II, to a lot of guys having gone into the military? Exactly. You had all these gay men and women from all over the United States who thought they were the only one on the planet and they're thrown together. They're um, in these camps. They meet each other. They see just how many, what their numbers are, and their numbers are huge. Straight people notice them too, and everybody kind of comes away from the experience more curious. Also, because of the war, people were willing to talk about things they weren't willing to talk about before. I mean, just the profanity, the being exposed to so much profanity in the military, uh, had a big big change on what things could be written about, what, what people wanted to write about in their fiction. Fiction got looser, got more freewheeling in its subject matter, and thus the subject of homosexuality was able to find a place? Yeah, it was yeah, well, just homosexuality people were talking about. It was sex in general, right. and that would, of course, include homosexuality. <laughs> There was there was Henry Miller, of course, before the war, but after the war you had all kinds of novels coming out uh, that were pretty explicit by the standards of the day. Oh, yes, yes. But despite what you're saying, I mean, this was a time when, when being gay was still, you know, more or less illegal in many ways. 
So, so how were gay writers able to write about gay subjects, and, and who did after World War II? In '47, a couple of books came out, and then in '48, suddenly you had both Gore Vidal and Truman Capote within weeks of each other. Uh, Vidal published City in the Pillar, and Capote published Other Voices, Other Rooms. Uh, also, the Kinsey Report came out that same month. Uh, explaining just how much sex there was going on in the United States, including gay sex. But these men could not say, I'm writing this as a gay man, because it was homosexuality was still illegal in all 48 states. So they would just say, oh, I'm just telling a story. Uh, this, is, this is fiction. This is based on my observations. I really know nothing about this life myself. And in fact, you know, City in the Pillar is not autobiographical, but anybody reading it, could safely assume that the author was gay, that he knew about this experience from his own life. And reviewers could not say these are books by gay men because that would have been libelous. Uh, So they found other coded ways. Both those novels took a lot of grief when they first came out. Just the amount of abuse, you go back and read those old reviews and it's startling how much scorn was kind of poured on these books. Now, in the case of The City and the Pillar, it was about a relationship between two men, one of whom was in love with the other. The other, in this case, takes up with a woman, and uh, the one who's in love with him comes to a bad end, right? The novel begins with two boys right out of high school have sex together and then go their separate ways, and one of them is still in love with the other. And he, he has sex with different men along the way, but he's still in love with his first love until at the end he finally meets him again and finds out he's straight. So he kills him. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not, not a happy ending, for, but very, it is very dramatic. And interesting, Gore Vidal then years later went back and rewrote the book and gave it a somewhat happier ending. The, the gay guy only rapes his friend. He doesn't kill him. <laughs> but I, I'm guessing that this is what you were supposed to do with, with stories of gay love. You're supposed to have them uh, come to, uh, you know, horrible ends and, and punished um, and otherwise show, you know, their waywardness. So wasn't Gore Vidal sort of hewing to the conventional belief there at that point? I, I think that, and also it makes a more dramatic ending. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many of the straight classics have happy endings? A good tragic ending can be very satisfying. And and yes, because you're telling a gay story, it has an unhappy ending. Nobody can accuse you of writing propaganda. So that was another reason to kind of give those stories an unhappy ending. Um, what about, though, Truman Capote? You mentioned him, too, late 40s, his first novel, which was uh, Other Voices, Other Rooms. And that was far less graphic, let's say, than, than Gore Vidal's book, right? It was. Basically, it's a, it's a wonderful novel. It was kind of great to go back and reread it. It's a boy about 12 or 13 is sent to live with relatives in this back corner of Alabama. And he's looked after by his cousin Randolph, who is a gay man. And his cousin Randolph tells him about this. His cousin Randolph is still in love with a Mexican boxer he met years before. And that's kind of an openly gay storyline in there. I mean, people then projected all these other things onto the novel. The novel was most famous not for what was in it, but for what was on it. There's a jacket photo of Capote stretched out rather invitingly on a sofa. <laughs> and people accuse, oh, this book is really about 
this gay man, this gay author, and a lot of the reviews were more about the photo than they were about what was actually in the book. What's your sense, going back and reading these books, and, and you did, in, in writing your book, you, you made your way all the way from these immediate post-war novels by Truman Capote and Gore Vidal, all the way up through writing from about 10 years ago or so, right? I mean, until the near present, right? Yes, yes. And, and so you really sort of recapitulated for yourself, you know, the progress of, and I'm going to use this term, you know, with certain amount of caution, because I don't really like it, it sounds ghettoizing, but gay literature, right? Yeah. And, and so what was the experience like for you following the, the development of, of this kind of writing? Well, I got to see from early on just actually how much good writing there really was. I mean, we think of, oh, all the books before Stonewall, they're full of gloom and doom. And there is some of that, but there's actually a lot of light mixed in with that. I mean, books like uh, Down There on a Visit by Christopher Isherwood or later A Single Man. And there's a lot of really good writing being done and, and continue to be done after Stonewall. What I found changing, what was kind of the big revelation reading, was how these books were received. I was saying before the kind of just nasty, scornful reviews that both Truman Capote and Gore Dahl got for their first books. That continued up until, I'd say, well into the early 80s. It was it's just incessant, the, the abuse uh, gay writers would take from the mainstream, from so-called intellectuals who were just uh, completely contemptuous of of gay men telling their stories. And that, to me, was the biggest change of all. Well, you know, you had uh, Vidal and Truman Capote and Tennessee Williams, three of the biggest names, and then James Baldwin also, three, four of the biggest names to emerge in, in the, the late 40s or, or the 50s, getting rave reviews too, right? I mean, they were all saluted as some of the best writers of their generation. Uh, they were, but it kind of took shifts and changes. I'm trying to, with Tennessee Williams, all this praise, tons of praise. And then there was this period where it was like word got out that he was gay. And there was like, I think of it like this homosexual theater panic attack in the mid-1960s. And his work, which had been loved before, suddenly these critics are turning against it. The same thing happened with Edward Albee when Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf first opened, it got rave reviews. Then about a year or so later, as if word got out that Albee was gay, and Albee was always open about his being a gay man, and people turned against the, the play and kind of attacked it, saying this isn't really about us, this is not about a, a straight couple, this is about a gay couple. And those attacks continued right up until the movie with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton opened. And there you have the most famous heterosexual couple on the planet delivering these powerhouse lines to each other. And nobody said this was a gay couple anymore. There was clearly a, man and a woman delivering those lines. You couldn't deny that without looking really silly. Yeah, I was very interested and sort of appalled to read uh, some of the examples of the reviews that you discovered and present in your book. Again, this is mid-60s, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, um, which I think probably all our listeners will know this play. But, you know, it's basically two couples spending an evening together and fighting a lot. But um, Philip Roth, of all people, uh, attacked it. He refers to the gratuitous and easy symbolizing its ghastly pansy rhetoric and repartee. Yeah, well, actually, that wasn't about Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Oops. It was about 
Albie's next play, Tiny Alice. Oops, oops, sorry. But it's, still, but it's still absurd. It just makes you go back and you read that play. It's this strange, mysterious, symbolic play. But ghastly pansy rhetoric, what is he talking about? Um, and then there was the, the famous essay uh, that you quote a lot from by Stanley Kaufman, a critic uh, who was writing for the New York Times. And this is about the time of um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, right? Yeah. And, and this essay is called Homosexual Drama in Its Disguises. Yes. And uh, I, I want to repeat here a, a quote that you have in your book. The principal charge against homosexual dramatists is well known because three of the most successful playwrights of the last 20 years are reputed homosexuals. And he's referring to Tennessee Williams, Edward Albee, and... Uh, William Inge. Right, who, who we don't remember as well as the other two. No, no he's not the same. He, he wrote Picnic and The Dark at the Top of the Stairs. and Oh, and Come Back, uh, Little Sheba. Oh, yeah, that's a well-known one, yeah. Yeah. Um, and he goes on to say, Kaufman does, And because their plays often treat of women in marriage, therefore it is said post-war American drama presented a badly distorted picture of American women, marriage, and society in general. He goes on to say, the homosexual dramatist must be free to write truthfully of what he knows. So, so the charge there is that um, these gay writers, these gay playwrights, were giving us a distorted version of heterosexuality, because apparently because they didn't understand it, and yet we're writing about it. Yeah, yeah, that was, yeah, that was his charge. Uh, interestingly enough, later on when gay writers did actually write about gay lives openly. He never gave any of those works any praise. <laughs> yeah, this was not a call to liberation. This is this is a pretty scathing attack. Really. Yeah. And it was saying, yeah, this is gay men are kind of, they don't understand straight relations, and and they're telling lies about us, and we have to kind of demand people tell the truth. I mean, as Albie himself pointed out this time, oh, come on. Straight couples and gay couples, we argue the same way. There's no difference between the two. And some of Kaufman's attitudes about women that kind of leak through in that long essay are really disquieting. I mean, he, he, you feel like he doesn't really know women himself, so how can he <laughs> attack gay men for not knowing women? Uh, well, well, some of the really um, almost panicky attacks on gay writers. And, you know, this goes hand-in-hand hand with all kinds of homophobia. But, you know, am I a fool to think that some of these guys, as has historically been the case, might have been ambivalent about their own sexuality, some of the guys doing the attacking? Maybe, but I don't think so. Not Kaufman. I think he just didn't get it. I think he was frightened by what he didn't understand. I'm trying to think of any of the ones that kind of jumped out at me when I was kind of reading them. But I mean, Philip Roth has no... <laughs> Philip Roth is heterosexual through and through. There's no doubts about him, and he he would kind of fall into that, too. So uh, I, I guess I voiced my suspicion wrong. What I should have said is insecure in their sexuality. Oh, no, yeah, no, there's a lot of insecurity, just confusion. And I think it was their own maybe fear of women, and they're projecting it onto gay men. I mean, gay men aren't afraid of women. That's We we like women, uh, most of us. It's uh, And we're not dependent on women the way straight men are. So, so we're not going to feel threatened or anxious about them the way straight men are. But then the straight writers like Roth and Kaufman will project that onto gay men, will project their, project their own insecurities. So I think you're right there. Well, if you look at, you know, straight male writing, American writing, post-World War II, 
from Norman Mailer through Philip Roth and John Updike, you find a lot of uneasy sorting out of masculinity, right? I mean, American males were not comfortable with masculinity, straight males, right? No, no. and they weren't, well, they weren't comfortable with femininity either. It's, yeah. it's really fun to go back and reread some of that work. I mean, you write Mailer in particular, uh, Roth to some extent, uh, Bellow, uh, it's very interesting. There's, there's this kind of these sex wars going on with straight male writers during this period. More recently, you get straight men who write much better about women and are much more comfortable with women. Just uh, uh, John Irving, uh, Charles Baxter, but that that post-war generation—it's very uptight. Well, you know, it struck me in thinking about it um, that. You know, being a man at that time in America, probably more so than today, although it, it, it lingers for sure, it's not a birthright. It's something you have to constantly prove. Uh, and if you don't sufficiently prove it by betting women or, you know, going to battle, um, if you don't sufficiently prove it, then you are less than a man, which means you are more like a woman or more like a homosexual, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, some of the homophobia that uh, it comes out of some of these, these straight writers and straight critics. Where do you think it comes from in their relationship to masculinity? Oh, I mean, it's more the fear of the unknown. It's mm-hmm. more, I mean, I think you're right, there are, the masculine issues have a lot to do with, I mean, these attacks on gay writers in the 50s and 60s, I mean, these are things written by intellectuals, by men who sit around at the typewriter all day. Uh, not terribly masculine activities by <laughs> according to the stereotypes. And yes, I think you're right. They, they are uncertain about themselves, but they can reassure themselves about what tough he-men they are by pouring scorn on on these sissy writers. Um, Norman Mailer, if you think about post-war you, you, and you think about masculinity, he is the you know, he is the writer you're going to think about first. Most of his writing, or much of it, is about negotiating this this identity of his as a man. And he wrote a lot about gay people as well. You, you cite a couple essays. One is called The Homosexual Villain that yep. he wrote in the late yep. 50s. He, he was fascinated by the subject. He was, I mean, he's, you're right. Many of our images of post-war American masculinity seem to be encapsulized in Norman Mailer. But he was also more open and honest about that. He would talk about his own homophobia and explore that. He would. He was fascinated by gay men. He was uh, challenged by them. He liked a couple of gay writers very much, really liked their work. And he was also very competitive with them. He took them seriously. I mean, he was very competitive with James Baldwin. He did a famous essay called a, an, ex, an Expensive Count of the Other Talent in the Room. Yeah, yeah. And and he particularly went after Baldwin and said Baldwin was too nice, that Baldwin wasn't tough and angry enough. And Baldwin said his first response was he wanted to send an obscene telegram to Mailer. But then he had this great comeback. He knew Mailer liked to hang out with black musicians. And so he told stories about the black musicians. They... They thought Mailer was just this uptight cat, that he was just a little too au fait and... Uh, frantic. Fr- yeah, and frantic, <laughs> yes. And he had a lot of fun at Mailer's expense. 
But I found I, I enjoyed reading Mailer about gay writers because he would he'd say stupid things, but he'd also say kind of smart, appreciative things. He he admired Allen Ginsberg. Running into him at the Chicago. 1968 convention. He was had this great description of him. He just liked seeing him there and took him seriously. And I mean, was kind of the exception that proves the rule because he would talk about he would talk about his own fears and get them out there. Yeah, Mailer. It, it's interesting. He's a guy who could at one moment say something remarkably stupid and sort of unexamined, just shoot his mouth off, and on the other hand, he could be extremely self-aware. And uh, you can see him wrestling with ideas and, and moving along, progressing as a thinker. So he's pretty fascinating to read. Yeah, no, he's always fascinating to read. And a little frantic sometimes. And, 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 and frantic was the right, <laughs> yeah, that was Baldwin's word, you're right. That frantic is perfect for him, yes. <laughs> um, you spoke of uh, James Baldwin and Allen Ginsberg, and, and they're both really interesting cases in this this history you've put together of post-World War II uh, gay fiction. Um both of them weren't, I think, viewed in their time as primarily gay. I mean, Ginsburg, I think, was primarily like a beat or a hippie, and Baldwin was primarily viewed as a black writer, you know, writing about black subjects. And and the fact that they were both, um, they were both openly gay, right? I mean, they made no secret of it. Oh no, they, yeah, they were openly gay, and uh, Ginsburg would have to insist to interviewers and so say I'm homosexual, include that, say I am married to this other man, and he would, they, they didn't want to do that. They were uncomfortable with the whole subject. And maybe this is partly because, you know, gay rights as a movement really didn't get going until the end of the 60s and early 70s, right? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, in a big way. Um, so before that, there was civil rights, and there was the, the youth movement and the anti-war movement and uh, some of the things that Allen Ginsberg was identified with. But Ginsberg, as you point out, I mean, his poem, Howl, um, his most famous work by far, you know, has some, some really explicit gay sex in it, right? Yeah. No, he, he himself describes it as a coming-out poem, and it is. It was the first time he actually wrote about his homosexuality, and it's just part of the great energy of the poem, and completely matter-of-fact about it. And, and so the, the sex acts that he describes, you know, here, I'll read it, and we'll just have to do a lot of bleeping for radio. Yes. Here who, we go. Yeah. Who were by saintly motorcyclists and screamed with joy. And I'll continue with, who and were by those human seraphim, the sailors, caresses of Atlantic and Caribbean love. Um, so our listeners are going to hear a bunch of bleeps, but they can read between the lines. Yes. Yeah, and, and of course, there was an obscenity trial. It wasn't Ginsburg who was on trial. It was um, Ferlinghetti. Uh, it was his publisher, Ferlinghetti. Yes, uh, and, and who was uh, acquitted, thanks to a, a pretty remarkable judge. An amazing judge who was a really good reader. I mean, he was—he taught Sunday school, and he, you would think he'd be very old-fashioned. But he read very closely and very well. And he said, "This no, this is not pornography. This is not about uh, obscene words are being used, but this is not about uh, just sex. There's something else going on here." And he acknowledged that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and appreciated it. And this very famous poem that I think a lot—a lot more people knew about it than ever really read it. <laughs> so, so a lot of people, including me, when I was young, I think uh, you know, I knew about the poem, and I knew it was this great. I assumed it was this great sort of hippie war cry, you know, which included 
you know, spiritual awakening and an end to war and fight against capitalism and all these things that, you know, that I do think Ginsburg was aiming at, but that free love, including gay love, was part of the mix that he considered to be holy. The word he likes to use is holy for, for these human things as opposed to materialistic things, right? Yes, yes. No, and yeah, and the sexu- his, his own sexuality was very much a part of that. And yet, um, again, you had to really look closely to know that he was even gay during those years. Yeah, it, despite him putting his sexuality out himself. There's a really nice little book called Allen Ginsberg in America by Jane Kramer, originally published in The New Yorker, and I think it was in the early 70s, and she just talks about Ginsberg's roommate. And I don't, I'd love to know the re- if that was the editor wouldn't <laughs> let her say his lover or if that was her decision. She just referred to him as his roommate. Well, people were so uncomfortable and so uncertain as to how to talk about homosexuality uh, until pretty recently, right? I mean, <laughs> this is all recent history we're talking about. Yeah, no, it's not that long ago. It was when I was born in 1952, so it's in, in my lifetime. It's not like we're talking about the Victorian era. And you write, by the way, we talked about Ginsburg, but you also write about the de-gayification, your term, uh, of James Baldwin. Even though he wrote a, you know, very gay-themed novel, Giovanni's Room, back in the 50s. Yeah. No, it was uh, his, his second novel. It's about the love between two men, and the narrator is unable to accept that. He kind of goes back into the closet. It's a coming-out novel, but more effective for the character does not come out. Uh, and Baldwin wrote it. His agent said, destroy it. This is You don't want to publish this book. His original publisher, Knopf, rejected it, saying we're doing you a favor. Baldwin finally got it published in, in Britain. It was picked up in the United States. It did very well. Not lots of bad reviews, but it established him as a gay writer. His next book, Another Country, is he mixes it up. It's gay and straight, black and white, men and women, and the homosexuality is very much part of that mix. And so he was not afraid to write about it in his fiction. Interestingly, he almost never writes about it in his essays. And I think as a result, now he's more famous as an essayist than he is as a novelist. People will talk about him as a black writer. They won't talk about him as a gay writer, except in the gay community. They're, they're nervous about that. They're uncomfortable about that. Whereas he himself was very forthright about that. There's a famous interview he did with a British journalist who asked him, you were born black, poor, and homosexual. You must have thought, how much harder could life get for me? And Baldwin said, oh, no, I thought I'd hit the jackpot. (laughs) Well, maybe the jackpot, if you want to be close to the most important movements and, and social changes of that period, but not an easy life. No, not in, he had a very difficult life, yeah. and he succeeded for the longest time. It began to take its toll in in the late 60s when I think he was very much part of the civil rights movement, but then when the kind of the more radical black liberation movement kicked in, people like uh, 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 Eldridge Cleaver yeah. went after him mm-hmm. as a gay man, tore, tore into him as a gay man. And it's just real, in soul on ice, it's just a really ugly attack. 
And I think that confused Baldwin. He kind of wasn't sure after that for the longest time who he was, where, where he should stand. And he continued to write some terrific essays. The novels he didn't care as much about. There's still great stuff in them, but they're more uneven. But uh, And he spent more time out of the country. He spent more time in both the south of France and in Turkey. He loved Istanbul. He felt more comfortable there than he did in New York. But he had trouble with alcohol, um, as did Truman Capote, as did Tennessee Williams. You know, a number of these life stories have a kind of sad arc to them, especially that generation. How much do you attribute to, well, a lot of writers have that story, gay and straight, and how much do you attribute to to the fact that it was so hard to be gay at that time? A lot. I think it, it, you're right. All writers from in their generation had this need of alcohol, and it, and it took its toll. But for the gay writers, the need was even stronger. It took an even worse toll. The, the volume was turned up. Those you've mentioned, uh, Tennessee Williams, James Baldwin, and Truman Capote, it was alcohol that really took them down. They, they could never really uh, overcome that. You, you write about when uh, Edmund White, a younger gay writer at that time, met Truman Capote, and uh, he reported uh, Capote as having said, well, you'll write some wonderful books, I'm sure, but believe me, it's a horrible life. Uh, was he referring to the writing life, or was he referring to being gay? I think he was referring to the writing life. Yeah, yeah. I don't. Um, Capote was having big troubles with his own career at that point in his own writing. I think it was. I think it was the writing life. We, we mentioned Giovanni's Room, Baldwin's novel, and uh, Gore Vidal's novel, The City and the Pillar, both end in death, <laughs> both end in catastrophe. Uh, when did more positive stories about gay life? really start appearing? Well, not until later than we think. Stonewall was in 1969. But it takes time to write new books. You can't just suddenly, because there's a change in the atmosphere, it doesn't mean the next year we see books with different storylines. 1978, you saw suddenly saw all these books that were openly gay, like uh, Faggots by Larry Kramer, uh, Nocturnes for the King of Naples, by Edmund White, A Dancer from the Dance, by Andrew Holland. They all had their kind of gloomy, melancholy edge. But then you have also that your Tales of the City by Armistead Mopin. And it was a comic novel about San Francisco, covering lots of different storylines, and with a good half dozen characters, of which only really two of them are gay. And because it's a comedy... Nobody dies. Well, I mean, okay, somebody does die in Tales of the City, but it's not because they're gay. It's a, a straight man who has cancer. But you begin to see the change. It's not just happier endings. It's when people are unhappy. It's not because they're gay. It's because they're who they are. They are. It's, you no longer suffer because you're a homosexual. You suffer for for because you're human. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we start seeing that more and more. Mm -hmm. Maybe the first big novel that really kind of takes that direction was Tales of the City, which then Mopin wrote many different uh, sequels and extensions and then followed these people for the next. I think it's, it's did eight novels that carried us right up until the mid-'90s. Oh, no, he's, he just did Michael Tolliver was just a few years ago, and then he did a newer one, uh, Marianne in Autumn. 
Uh, so it started in, what was it, 1970? 78. 78, and then went almost you know 20 years or more. Uh, yeah. Um, and very popular, and of course it became a, a television series on PBS. Yeah. Uh, it was yeah. also extremely popular, and, and yeah, very upbeat and not full of angst you know, from its gay characters. Um, People could still be unhappy, but they were sure. unhappy because of who they were, not because they were gay. Right, right. Um, and then I was struck by a much, much earlier um, statement by Christopher Isherwood, another of the gay writers uh, that you talk about in depth in the book, um, actually writing to uh, Gore Vidal, I think, was this way back in the 40s, about the city and the pillar? Yeah, he was, uh, he'd been sent a copy of the book for uh, for a quote. And he gave it a quote, but he wrote back to to Vidal saying he didn't wish the, it hadn't ended in death. He thought that sent the wrong message. He, he admitted, I can see why you do it. We, it's certainly plausible, but I think it sends the wrong message. He says, uh, what I do question is the moral the reader will draw. This is what homosexuality brings you to, he will say, tragedy, death, and defeat. Homosexual relationships can be, and frequently are, happy, Many men live together for years and make homes and share their lives and their work just as heterosexuals do. So this is Isherwood saying that, you know, long ago, uh, ahead of his time, really, in pushing that viewpoint. Um, when he did write The Single Man, which came out in 1960... Uh, 64, I think. 64. And, and, you know, was adapted two years ago into a movie starring Colin Firth. So may, maybe people who haven't read the, the book uh, will know it from the movie. When he did, there is a portrait of a gay man that's, well, it's it's not a totally happy story because his lover has died, but none of his, you know, none of his unhappiness is simply because he's gay, right? No, no, it's because he's he's alone. Yeah, he misses yeah. his lover. Right. And interesting in the movie, it begins with he wants to commit suicide because he's grieving so hard mm -hmm. over the death of his lover. Mm -hmm. That's not true in the book. In the book, he's learning to live with it. He misses him, he's pained by it, but he's coping with it. He's living this very careful balancing act, living with grief over his, his missing lover. And so it's even, in a way it's even more positive, if you will, than, than the later movie is. And, and Isherwood had already written other things, for instance, um, a book that was called The World in the Evening, and that included a subplot with a gay couple who weren't, you know, beset by by tragedy? Yeah, no, it's a great surprise. It was published in the mid-50s. It's a narrated by a straight Englishman but uh, and has things about his life, but as almost they're like guest characters popping in and out is this gay couple, and they argue like any other couple, but they are a genuine couple. It's kind of wonderful, and it's refreshing. And interesting, when the book came out, several reviewers, including Angus Wilson, who was homosexual himself, said, oh, I don't believe this. Is, this is just uh, special pleading. There's no such thing. <laughs> and, and although then Isherwood would get fan letters from gay men all over the country saying, oh, thank you for including those two men. That meant so much to me. It was, uh, it was like seeing ourselves in, in print. It was wonderful. Thank you. Uh, he he wrote in a letter to a friend, um, I've received lots and lots of fan mail of the type you can guess. Actually, it's heartbreaking, the sense you get of all these island existences dotted like stars and nebulae all over the great black Middle West. Um, Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? It, it, it is, and um, it makes me want to ask you, what's your sense of 
these writers' idea of their audience at the time. I mean, they knew that they were writing for a lot of, you know, straight folks, but did they have a sense of a gay audience? I think only very slowly. Isherwood got it slowly. I mean, those letters he got for World in the Evening, I think, were a nice surprise to him. He didn't really expect them. That was his, the first time he got an inkling that there really is a gay audience out there. With Single Man was the first time a review in a gay publication was used as a jacket blurb on the paperback to sell the book. So it was only then that the publishers realized there's a real gay audience for these books. That's who's reading this work. And also that the authors themselves were realizing, I can touch people like myself out there. Mm-hmm. I think it's it a very slow development. I don't think... Gore Vidal or Truman Capote or even Tennessee Williams early on thought that that was going on. But but Isherwood, coming a little later, kind of recognized what was happening and then and benefited from it. It must have given him comfort. Mm-hmm. It must have made him feel good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, I raise the point because, you know, the thrust of your book is that it was literature. It was this kind of literature that had a really indispensable role in sort of raising gay consciousness uh, in a way that other media weren't doing because people were too afraid or they simply couldn't uh, put this kind of content into movies and on TV. So it had it was up to literature to start, yep. you know, talking about gay life and transforming perceptions of gay life. Uh, yes, because there's no other place for these stories to be told. They could not be on TV, of course. They, could, they couldn't even be in the movies. But the stories were told in, in books, and sometimes they were a little bit sensational, and they often had unhappy endings, but better an unhappy ending than no story at all. Uh-huh. So a lot of the gay readers would kind of find out about each other through these books. Straight readers would find out about them, not necessarily in the books themselves, but reading the reviews. And even the bad reviews, even the negative reviews, got the word out. They understood that, well, there's all these strange people out there. I wonder if I know any of them. I mean, the biggest change we've had in the past 15 years is now everybody knows somebody who's gay. It's no secret. But back then, back in the 40s and 50s, it would be, oh, there's... Those are just people who live only in New York and San Francisco. Mm-hmm. They're not in my town. Creatures of, of fiction only or, or fable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you write that um, books and plays gave journalists an opportunity to discuss a forbidden topic with a wide readership. Initially, they could discuss homosexuality only negatively, yet any kind of talk was preferable to silence for people who needed simply to be told, you are not alone. The attacks were often as valuable as the defenses in the long run. Now, that's a really interesting viewpoint. Um, One might have thought, oh, the backlash against gay writing uh, among critics would be a big setback, you know, and that people would feel even more chastened, more fearful, you know, to express themselves. But you're saying just talking, even if it's negative, is, is a way of saying, look, this is real, it's time, we exist, um, and, and so on. Yeah, it was, it was preferable to silence. Uh, it, it was preferable to being ignored. I'm trying, I, I don't remember who said it, but somebody said, first they ignore you, then they make fun of you, and then they attack you, and then you win. <laughs> and that's, it certainly has been what's happened with gay people in this country. You know, you um, enter this book only sparingly, 
Uh, you mentioned yourself only a couple of times, but I'm really curious. I mean, uh, as we say, the, the, the real theme of this book is that gay literature was this transformative force and essential to ultimately gay rights. How was it affecting you growing up in the 60s and 70s? And let me ask first, when did you start thinking of yourself as gay and did literature have something to do with that? Oh, literature had a lot to do with me being able to find myself. I mean, I knew I was attracted to to guys, and and for me, one of the big revelations was I was I was in the Boy Scouts. I was a Boy Scout counselor, and one day in the staff lounge, there was a copy of Leslie Fiedler's essays, which included his notorious essay "Come Back to the Raft Again, Huck Honey," where Fiedler all argues that. A common theme in American literature is for the white male to run off into the wilderness in the arms of his black or Indian male lover. Leslie Fiedler, we should say, was a very influential literary critic uh, in the 1960s. Uh, this, he actually wrote this in 1948, in oh, the wow. same year, the Kinsey Report and City in the Pillar and Other Voices of the Room came out. It was an amazing year for, for all these works came out. Wow, and, and this is a, an essay in part about Huckleberry Finn. There's a line where um, Jim says, come back to the raft, Huck, honey, right? Yeah, yeah. And he has this gay interpretation of that. So you saw this essay when you were in the Boy Scouts? I stopped somebody. I, don't, I never found out who was reading it, who I was working with, but he had left his copy of it out, and I read it. I thought, wow, I'm... I'm not a pervert. I have something in common with Huck Finn. It made me feel very good. It made me feel very happy. That's incredible. I, I, was the essay homophobic? I mean, was it frowning on this tradition that he thought he'd identified? You know? It was, but it, he was so kind of cool and hip about it. He, was, he thought this was actually something wrong with American literature. The American literature did not do heterosexual love well. It could only do these other loves, including homosexual love. But he, he was more, he was having a lot of fun tweaking the noses of readers. So he wasn't, he wasn't mean about it. He was, very, he was very cool and funny about it. It's a great essay to go back and reread now. It hasn't dated that much. But it is surprising it was done in 1948. Yeah, you know, I've heard about that essay for years. It's kind of a legendary essay. Yeah, yeah. But but you say, uh, how old were you at this time? I was uh, 16. 16, and that essay was something that was sort of validation? It was you? validation, yeah. It, it was telling me uh, my desire to take showers with my best friends is not a perversion. <laughs> it's uh, as as American as Huckleberry Finn, so... <laughs> And then did you go on to start reading more more literature that uh, written by gay writers or anything like that? Uh, yeah, anything I could get my hand. I read a lot of Thomas Mann back then, uh -huh. where, where boys are always falling in love with boys, and uh, André Gide, and, and just, I, I mean, I joke that I read my way out of the closet. I, wow. And so a lot of my kind of attitudes about sexuality and so forth came from, from reading. And those were older books, mostly, you're talking about. Yeah, mostly, mostly older books. So, so the kinds of writers we're talking about in the book under discussion today, Eminent Outlaws, those weren't the ones that... They came, they came later. I mean, I read them later. Oh. I'm trying to think which of the ones... I remember, I remember reading... I read City and the Pillar when I was in, in high school, and 
killing somebody because they didn't love you back. That wasn't my what I had in mind. That wasn't the uh, type of love I was striving for. And I think what else spoke to me then? Some trashy books. I mean, trash can do a good job of helping you find yourself. Yeah, we haven't talked about the fact that there has long been, even in, in the days when you know homosexuality wasn't openly discussed, there was an underground of sort of pulp literature, right? Yeah, yeah. That managed to, I guess, turn a profit for the publishing industry. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. There was that period in in the early 50s where, despite the success of books like Sidney and the Teller, which was a bestseller, publishers kind of backed away from gay books. The mainstream publishers did, but pulp houses took up a lot of the slack. Uh-huh. And there's a wonderful book by Michael Bronsky called Pulp Friction, where he did an overview of this trashy gay fiction from the late 40s up into the early 60s. And it's a fascinating book. I mean, just the, the list of titles. And the quality of the writing varies from some of it's actually quite good. Some of it is howlingly bad. Mm-hmm. It's just it's very it's entertainingly awful. But it was out there. It was kind of making the rounds. You could buy it in your drugstore. So you read some of that stuff, too? I read some of that stuff, too. Uh-huh. And when did you become or decide to become a writer? Oh, probably even before I realized I was a gay man. From maybe junior high on, maybe even earlier, I just I liked writing. I liked putting words down on the page. I liked telling myself stories with those words and recording conversations between people who didn't even exist. I just really had a good time doing that. So at, at what point did you decide to put the two together? That is, the fact that you were gay and the fact that you were a writer, and write about that. Uh, later, later than you would think. I wrote a, right after college, I wrote a straight novel, went through like, worked on it for seven years, went through three drafts, and couldn't sell it. And so I figured, well, okay, for the next book, I might not be able to sell this one either. So, and this would be, this would have been the mid-70s. Uh-huh. I decided, okay, I might as well write about what I really want to write about, which is about being gay. So only then, when I was 25, 26, did I actually begin to write as a gay writer. Uh-huh. I'm looking at your website right now, and on the bio page, there's a... Um cover of the gay magazine uh, Christopher Street. Oh, yes, by Veronica Lakeshot. <laughs> <laughs> it says, uh, Christopher Bram's sexy first novel, Surprising Myself. And then there's this picture of you, and yes, you, you are very fetchingly posed, for sure. Yeah, that was uh, a joke picture taken by my boyfriend, and where I have this like wing of black hair hanging over one eye. Uh-huh. And he said, let's, let's send this to the magazine, see if they want to use this, and they loved it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I still have people tease me about that photo, what, 30 years later. Oh, boy. So, but at that point then, um, and this was what year did you say? I published Surprising Myself in 1987. So at this point, you become part of the very history that you're telling in your new book. And yet you don't really bring yourself and your own writing into it. Yeah, I just, it would have been too confusing. I thought, I'm just going to concentrate on the other people, and if... I come into the story, I'll include myself, but otherwise I'm going to leave myself out. I, I have no objectivity. I can't tell how important I am to the story or not. So I just thought it'd be so much easier just to leave myself out. Mm. And so it didn't feel awkward not talking about yourself? Um, no. no. Okay. You, you do talk about, though, a moment when you were 16, and um, 
a couple of the writers we've been talking about were, were major figures, not only through their writing, but also through their media presence. Both Truman Capote and um, Gore Vidal were frequent guests on talk shows and things like that on TV yep. uh, in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and you saw this famous moment when Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley were commentators at the uh, 1968 Democratic Presidential Convention in Chicago and got into a row. Uh, you, you want to summarize it for us? Yeah, um, they were on there providing commentary for each night during the Democratic Convention. And their tempers were getting shorter and shorter. And Vidal one night called Buckley a crypto-Nazi. And Buckley lost it and said, shut up, you queer, and proceeded to kind of tear into to Vidal. And I'm, you know, I'm 16 years old. I'm home from Boy Scout camp. And I'm saying, did he, he just call him a queer on national TV? <laughs> and it was like the insult heard around the world. Although, interestingly, the next day, newspapers could not use the word. They would just say he called him a vulgar name. Uh-huh. They, they could not use use the word queer in print. And it could have just ended there, but Buckley was still furious, and he wanted to write about it. He went to Esquire and said, I want to write an attack on Gore Vidal, and I'm going to attack him as a homosexual. I want you to know that up front. And Esquire said, well, okay, but uh, Vidal has to be able to respond. And so they each wrote these long essays, and showed them to each other, they showed them to lawyers, and part of the problem was Vidal made the argument that there was no such thing as a homosexual. It's an adjective, it's not a noun. And so William F. Buckley can't call me a homosexual because no such thing exists. So you read Buckley's essay as it ran, and he is wants so badly to call Vidal a homosexual, and he can't. He's having to kind of just use all these euphemisms and other things. And he really foolishly thought, if I can prove, show that Vidal's a homosexual, I will show he's a bad person. Mm-hmm. Absolute nonsense. Discredit him, yeah. Yeah. So that piece ran. Vidal ran his piece, which is where he accuses and backs up his accusations, Buckley and Buckley's family, of racism, anti-Semitism, and Buckley sued. And the case ended up in the courts for like three years and, and got constant attention. It, it kept the insult alive for another three years. So what do you think was, I mean, what was the impact on you, first of all, as a, as a 16-year-old? Well, first of all, I mean, I thought, well, is he using queer as just a all-purpose insult the way we used to do in, in school back then? And I realized, oh, no, he's calling this famous literary figure a homosexual. And I thought, oh, Maybe he is, uh, and I, that, well, that was kind of exciting. That was interesting that a person who appeared regularly on TV could be homosexual and still be respected and admired. And and I liked Vidal. He was very smart and very funny. So so that was, it gave me it was another bit of validation for me. So it was a, another one of those attacks that sort of backfired in some ways. Yeah, yeah. How interesting. Yeah, just getting the word out sometimes is, even when people's feelings get hurt, can do can change the world ultimately. You know, we're we're not going to have time to talk about the whole scope of your book, um, which you know goes all the way from the end of World War II to close to the present, uh, and passes through that twist in, in the history of sort of gay lives, where there's this moment of 
liberation in the 70s, you know, and then this descent of darkness in the AIDS era in the 80s. It's it's funny because now that they've got, you know, pretty good treatments for HIV, that also seems like a long time ago in some ways. But if you were writing this story, it was this amazing turn of events that some writers like Tony Kushner, of course, in Angels in America tried to, to grapple with. Yeah, yeah, and I, he actually he succeeded in grappling with it. And also Larry Kramer in The Normal Heart. Right, I mean, right. Two really powerful plays yeah. dealt with AIDS. Yeah. And, and the response to AIDS. But this was not something that's supposed to be part of the story in a liberation movement. Things are just supposed to get better and better, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it was like this huge whole challenge that this... And at first it seemed like a giant step backward. I mean, it was looked like, oh, homosexuals are being accepted. But then we were demonized all over again with the AIDS epidemic. But I think it also it gave a new kind of urgency and a, to the movement, to, to gay identity, to it politicized people in a way they had not been politicized before. It gave the writers a really important subject to write about and to dig into and address and wrestle with. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then almost suddenly, in a way unexpected, with the new treatments with proteas and, and retrovirals, um, it stopped being a, an instant death sentence. Yeah, yeah. And the quickness with which that happened and the unreality of it was really surprising. It was to go back and try to recreate that confusion was, and it wasn't that long ago, it was only in the mid-1990s that that change happened. Uh, it was like a cloud slowly lifted. The cloud, uh, you know, descended suddenly uh, with this mysterious illness, and, and then it changed. And, and, you know, your book caused me to look back on that and think, what an amazing, you know, kind of incomprehensible thing that was. Yeah. Yeah. There's a new documentary that I just saw that is opening, I think, in April called How to Survive an Epidemic by David France. And it focuses on ACT UP and it uses ACT UP and the clinical groups working within ACT UP to show that change. And it's amazing to see the story spelled out like that, to see the story unfold in, as a drama. It's a documentary. It's really well done. It's a, it's a great story, and it really tells the story well. Huh. I'll, I'll, I'll look for it. Um, well, where are we now, then, in this story of gay literature or of gay writers? We're getting to the point where, where gay is becoming really normalized, uh, and, you know, retrograde political movements notwithstanding, in a rather short period of time, has become, you know, just another way of being a normal person, you know? Yep. And so what does that do to, to, to writing? Well, I think it's, it's opened up the writing more. It should make it kind of looser and more accessible. And there's still really terrific work being done. But at the very time this is happening, we, we see this change in the book business. And publishing is going through a transition. We don't know what's going to happen next. I mean, sales figures are down. People don't read fiction as much as they used to. And so even though there's terrific books to read, people aren't reading them as much, which is too bad. So so it's hard to, hard to say. It's uh, both in terms of the work and how it's being received. I mean, the, for me, the biggest change in 
terms of stories I can see is the existence of great gay plot lines on TV. Exactly. TV has really taken up the the role of of the you know the super progressive um, medium, right? Oh yeah, and they do it really well. I mean, I've just finished watching the third season of Nurse Jackie, and the gay subplots and materials in there are just so wonderfully matter of fact and smart and funny, <laughs> and and dangerous still. They're, uh-huh. they're they're not kind of like we're not just a laugh line. It's uh, these are real people's lives and real things are at stake, but really smart TV can handle that as well as fiction does. But, um, you know, if you look at a, a show like Modern Family, do you ever watch that? Modern Family does it a great job. Comedy does it really well. I, I'm, I'm, oh, I love how comedy can include these different things. Well, Chris, uh, there's so many more questions I'd like to ask you, but I thought I should let you go. <laughs> okay, well, great talking to you. This has been really terrific, Robert. But until next time. Christopher Bram's new book is Eminent Outlaws, The Gay Writers Who Changed America. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly, signing off until next week. You can learn more and listen to past shows at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com.